Good evening and welcome. Um, I want to start out the evening um, by telling you how honored I am, really, to be sitting here with you all. It's, it's a brave thing that we do, this, this practice. And it's so important, really, to take the time to stop being busy and to, um, to sit quietly, to be present and open to what arises in you. Rumi said, um, pay regular visits to yourself. So, so we use this practice really to um, investigate, investigate our own hearts and minds. And it's also good to really reflect um, out loud on this practice that we do because it, it is a demanding practice. It's, it's hard. We all know how hard it is sometimes to sit, just to find the time, just to sit for five, ten minutes. Sometimes it's hard. And when we do sit, it's, you know, it's, it's not easy. Sometimes it's peaceful, but not always. And then we all have to deal with that, you know, question that, that pops up, you know, um, you know, why, why am I doing this? <laughs> why am I doing this? Um, why am I sitting here doing nothing? So, of course, but we know as practitioners that there's a lot going on when we sit, right? It's we're not sitting there doing nothing. There's a lot going on. So, anyway, I wanted to bow to you all for the um, effort and for the understanding and the wisdom that really was required for making the decision to, to be here tonight, to sit. I mean, with all the entertaining distractions, um, that our culture has for us, for our constant entertainment. I mean, it's really easy just to settle back and consume, you know, some entertaining experience or um, bathe in the sensual pleasures that we we have all around us. It's it's so it's in this culture it's particularly hard, I think, to, to practice. Um, I wanted to read a quote from. Um, Edward Conzi, I think is the way you pronounce his name. Edward Conzi was a British man, and he was one of the first Western Buddhist scholars and um, the first one to, um, to translate some of the primary texts of Buddhism um, into English. And um, so he wrote, The present age multiplies the distractions from the sensory world to such an extent that the calm of the invisible world is harder to reach than ever. So to be here, to practice, to sit, requires um, a good number of the most worthy and inspiring of human qualities. Well, for one, you're probably here because you have a deep sense um, and understanding that all of those distractions out there in, in the culture, the infinite ways that we can entertain ourselves, the constant quest to consume pleasurable experiences, that these are um, not in the end very deeply satisfying. 
I mean, our culture would have us believe, and it continually reinforces in so many ways, that it's good to be greedy, you know, and that we're primarily here to buy and consume. I mean, the media, the advertising, the messages are everywhere, aren't they? But if you're here tonight, then you probably have a pretty good idea that really just sitting quietly, observing your breath and being present for that flow of of thoughts and emotions and sensations, that this is really more satisfying than anything that you can buy and consume. Um, There's a story about... um, Socrates and his followers and um, his followers asked him, you know, Socrates, why do you keep going to the market every week? I mean, you live like a monk. You never buy anything. And Socrates answered, I like to see all the things I'm happy to do without. So if you've reached this conclusion that it's often more satisfying to just sit quietly and be present, um, then really have taken um, a a step onto um, the Buddha's noble eightfold path. Because this is really uh, what he called right or wise view or right or wise understanding. You have observed, you have a felt sense you have directly experienced that living the life of a consumer of pleasurable experiences is ultimately not very satisfying. So what are these qualities, these truly admirable qualities that have brought all of us here tonight? Well, there's the element of faith, trust in uh, something intangible, something that uh, can't be proven scientifically or verified by the thinking mind. The feeling at a um, a very deep level that almost everything that our culture tells us is important isn't really that important. That we're not here in this life in order to be a consumer. And this feeling tells us that we are really so much more than that. This feeling tells us that sitting quietly, being mindful, sitting with an open heart to whatever is, that this is so much more worthy of us than anything that we see outside of ourselves. So, faith. But, you know, faith has really kind of taken a bad rap um, in our culture because this is such an age of cynicism it's just it's just amazing um, to me um, and and then again I'm not all I'm not talking uh, about blind faith I want to make that very clear I mean accepting views and beliefs without questioning I mean this is not uh, certainly this isn't what the Buddha um, taught he never said you know believe this He always said, you know, try this out, reflect on it, live it. And, you know, if it makes a difference for you, if it frees you from 
um, unhappiness and stress and frees you from sleeping through your life, frees you from not paying attention, frees you from constantly searching for that next pleasurable experience, then make the practice your own. If it doesn't give you some sense of peace and well-being, well, go and look, seek elsewhere. So, faith. Um, We can also use the words trust or confidence. And my first experience with this, this true faith was uh, came um, about 10 years ago when um, when we were deciding as a community, as a sangha, that we wanted to try and find and buy a building. Because at that time we were sitting at the Friends Meeting House in Palo Alto and Portola Valley and we were kind of nomadic, you know, just renting places. And But we kept growing. And... Um, and so I was working on this project um, with Gil and other people in the Sangha. And, um, I, you know, I was, really, I was really worried. You know, I was really worried. First of all, it just seemed so insurmountable that we could raise enough money to buy a building. And so then we found this place. And um, over several years, we had been able to raise um, enough money to make the down payment. And so then I was worrying about, um, you know, well, are we going to be able to make our mortgage payments? Are we going to be able to pay the utilities? You know, I just, I didn't know, and, and really no one knew. It was really a leap of faith. <laughs> but, um, you know, I kept looking, looking at Gil and kind of seeing what was going on with him over all this, and he just seemed just so quietly assured. He just seemed so unworried and unconcerned. And I was really inspired by that. I was inspired enough to have the faith to keep forging ahead and to um, forget, forget those worries. And sure enough, we were able, completely through the generosity of the people who come here, we were able to pay off this building in three years. And um, IMC is you know, financially sound. And so that was my first experience with faith. First watching it, seeing it in Gill, and then it kind of, kind of infused into me. And also back then, um, in the first years when I was practicing, and even now, sometimes, every once in a while this happens to me, I'll be sitting... Um, absorbed in meditation and um, I will sort of have this experience where I will come outside of myself and I'll be looking at me sitting there and I'll go you know what are you what are you doing just sitting there doing nothing why don't you you know you could use every day you spend all this time sitting you could be studying something you could be you know um, acquiring a skill you could be reading why are you just sitting there doing nothing well, this is doubt, right? This is we know what this is. It's um, one of the hindrances. And so, how did I counteract? How do I counteract um, that doubt? Well, I had already begun to um, experience directly in my life um, 
the benefits of my practice. And so then I would reflect. I would reflect on how my life um, had improved, how, um, you know, really uh, this sort of profound transformation was really was really taking place, was happening. And, um, you know, the first thing I noticed was that I sometimes in a situation in life, I would have just a moment or a second where I could actually choose how I wanted to um, respond to that situation. And, and I noticed then that when I had that little bit of a second, that I could, I could choose more wisely, I could choose more skillfully how to, um, how to respond in life. And so um, in that way, I really began to be able to live more skillfully. Um, and by that, I mean causing the least amount of suffering for myself and the people around me. So this is really the law of cause and effect, right? I mean, our actions, um, our actions do matter. Our actions have consequences. Wise choices lead to happiness and unwise choices lead to suffering. The other difficulty, getting back to faith, the other difficulty is that... um, that we live in a culture that puts so much emphasis um, on intellect and um, on the powers of the thinking mind. So, you know, sometimes it can be hard to have faith in something that, you know, we can't prove scientifically. Although, um, I always like to tell people, and maybe you, probably some of you have read about these um, Scientific experiments, really, that have been um, they've been conducting on meditating monks, and this is um, largely through the efforts of the Dalai Lama. And these scientific experiments um, actually do prove how uh, direct um, and measurable the health benefits are of this practice to to the brain and to the body. So. Um, so we can counteract our doubts with reflection on how the practice has improved our lives. I mean, aren't we more awake to uh, the small and simple pleasures of life after we've been practicing for a while? And isn't it easier to uh, make decisions, the big ones and the little ones, when our minds are more calm and more settled and more focused? And don't we have better interaction with our uh, family members and our friends and co-workers? And then don't we have a sense that the, um, the intellect and the thinking mind um, really, are, really are only one aspect of um, a greater and more vast consciousness? That, that we are so much more than the personality, the, the small sense of self that goes about all those everyday concerns, you know, getting up in the morning and having breakfast and getting in the car and getting on the freeway and driving to work and coming back and having dinner and, you know, on and on. Aren't we so much more? And we begin to um, we, we begin to really experience some freedom, and this is what the Buddha was, was talking about when he talked about liberation, freedom from from suffering. 
we begin, we, we begin to be free from all that judging and critiquing that, that we do um, for ourselves and, 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 on other, on, and towards other people. And we begin to become free from those patterns of behavior, those ruts, you know, that we get in in terms of our thinking and our, our actions in the world. And then we begin to see the world um, from a place of wisdom rather than from a place of, of greed and, and fear and aggression. You know, we offer a class um, here at the center several times a year, usually following the introduction to mindfulness class. It's called the Beginner's Practice Group. And um, I think some of you have actually been in that class. I recognize some of you. Um, but there was a man in that class. And, um, you know, after we, uh, the, the, the class goes for five weeks, one evening a week. And um, after a few weeks, I always like to ask people, um, you know, have you noticed anything different in your life now that you um, are, are practicing more or less regularly? And this man, um, Jim, told this great story. He, um, he had been in the city walking in one of the neighborhoods, and um, he noticed that there was kind of like an altercation going on on one of the street corners. And there was a homeless man there, and he was kind of really hassling uh, a woman, I mean, really kind of getting in her face. And, and uh, Jim, um, you know, he just got really, he was going to go over there and he was going to fix that. And, you know... And so he started walking over there and, and um, in his usual way, you know, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tell that guy to cut that out. And and he um, he noticed, you know, oh, this this is a familiar pattern for me. You know, here I go. And um, and then he kind of in his mind, he he um, he saw the situation kind of play out the way it had, I guess, many, many times before in some way. You know, that, that he would get there and he would get in the guy's face and there would be, you know, um, harsh words and conflict and, you know, maybe the police might be called. And he stopped. He, he stopped. And um, he said to himself, you know, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want that. That's not going to work for me. Um, and so then he, um, he just, he, he's... He continued walking towards the, this, this person, and more slowly now, and by the time he, he got there, the woman was gone. It was just the homeless man on the, on the corner. And he, he walked up to the homeless man, and he said, uh, you know, gee, can I buy you a muffin? <laughs> you know? It was just, he was free. He was free from his rut of behavior. Mindfulness is a wonderful thing. And then there's the support that our emotional life can give to our practice and to, um, to our faith. Our faith in ourselves as something, you know, greater than that small sense of self. I mean, what sustains us? What keeps uh, our faith steady even when we encounter uh, difficulties and challenges in our life? Well, isn't it that sense of... Um, this inner spaciousness and peacefulness and tranquility and equanimity that we 
that we cultivate uh, every time we sit down on the cushion or the chair. I mean, isn't this what we practice? We practice staying steady. We practice staying calm. You know, even when that back pain keeps coming up over and over or that constant, you know, worry about the job or worry about money or whatever it is, it keeps coming up and we just practice staying steady. We recognize it and let it go, come back to the breath and um, maintain that sense of spaciousness and peacefulness as best we can. So this is what we're practicing. And then when those really, truly painful uh, challenges come in our life, we're not swept away. You know, we have some ease that um, stays with us even through the great sorrows and the great losses that we all have as human beings. So what else can help us nurture our faith, our trust, our confidence in practice? Well, there's the Sangha or uh, community. Sangha, uh, translated, means assembly, Gil told us a couple nights ago. And um, I like to think of the Sangha as, uh, as a web of relationships. And this web includes all of us here tonight, and it includes um, those other people who come to the center from time to time. It includes all practitioners of mindfulness everywhere um, uh, at this moment in time, cultivating mindfulness. And, And all of those beings enlightened and approaching enlightenment who have practiced through the ages. So this would be the Buddha and the Buddha's disciples, the Dalai Lama, and um, all of those great sages who have lived through the ages. This is, this is the Sangha with a capital S. So we're all really in good company. The Buddha almost always began his discourses to his disciples with, Oh, nobly born. I, I love that. So when we sit, we sit as noble ones. We sit with the same dignity and wisdom and compassion that all the great teachers and their students have sat with. I wanted to share with you something that um, Upandita wrote about the importance of the Sangha as a way of arousing rapture, rapture being um, a state that comes with very deep concentration. So he writes, rejoicing in the virtues of the Sangha. Recollecting the virtues of the Sangha is the third major way of developing rapture listed in the commentaries. The Sangha is the group of noble individuals, noble individuals who are totally committed to the Dharma, striving earnestly and patiently. They follow the path in a straight and correct way and arrive at their respective destinations. If you have experienced some purity of mind in your practice, you can imagine others feeling the same thing and perhaps even deeper levels far beyond what you have known. 
If you have attained some degree of enlightenment, you will be endowed with unshakable faith in the existence of other noble ones who have traversed the same path with you. Such people are indeed pure and impeccable. So outside of here, it can often feel like we're surrounded by a sea of cynicism and skepticism and all this emphasis on material goods. And so our faith can be like uh, a delicate flower, really, in the midst of all of that. So we have to protect it. And so we can do that. One of the ways of doing that is to um, associate as much as possible with mindful people and avoid the heedless ones. And then we can use our, our relationships, this this web of relationships with family members and other people in the Sangha and friends, we can use this for a model of how we would like the world to be. And so we can even, in fact, in a way, create our own world that way. And within that world, we practice um, mindful communication, which um, I love the way Thich Nhat Hanh describes that. He describes it as um, loving speech on the one hand and deep listening on the other. So what are some of the other qualities um, that we bring with us? Well, certainly mindfulness. Mindfulness, the refuge and protector of the mind is what it's known as. And it really is kind of what sets Buddhism apart from the other religions and spiritual pursuits in the world. I mean, they uh, some of them also talk about something like mindfulness, but but Buddhism is really the only um, the only tradition where it's really central. And so, you know, it appears on many of the lists that we have. Uh, We have in Buddhism many lists. But mindfulness, well, for example, it's the seventh of the um, eight steps on the Noble Eightfold Path. It's um, the third of the five virtues and the first of the seven factors of enlightenment. And so we read at the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Buddha's central teaching on how to practice, how to practice mindfulness the four applications uh, it says the four applications of mindfulness in other words mindfulness of the body mindfulness of feeling mindfulness of mind state mental state and mindfulness of consciousness the four applications of mindfulness are the one and only way that leads beings to purity to the transcending of sorrow and lamentation to the appeasement of pain and sadness to entrance upon the right method and to the realization of nirvana. So mindfulness, it's the cornerstone of this practice. And in the Abhidharma, Abhidharma, which is the third collection of the Buddha's teachings, in the Abhidharma, mindfulness is, um, 
is, is, is described as, as an act of remembering. An act of remembering which prevents ideas from floating away and which fights forgetfulness, carelessness, and distraction. So this is what we talk about when we say uh, being mindful of the breath, mindful when, those, when the story-making starts in the mind, mindful of that and you know, ideas floating away, noticing that and coming back from the breath, coming back to the breath. That is the practice. So, um, so mindfulness, an act of remembering. So mindfulness is, um, is an active, it's an active practice. There is this element that we're taking control. And, you know, one of the things that comes up often in this um, beginner's practice group class um, is this notion that our practice here is, uh, a, is a very passive, a very passive practice. And so I like to really emphasize to people that, um, that it's not a passive practice, that the practice of mindfulness is not about just going along with everything that arises uh, within the consciousness, with everything that goes on around us in life. Um, certainly, it is acknowledging what's going on, being open to what's going on, investigating what's going on, but not passively going along with everything. Um, I wanted to read this passage from the Miladapanya, which is a very interesting Buddhist text that it's separate from the main body of discourses and scriptures that that come from the Buddha. And what it is, is a record of conversations between King Menander. Um, King Menander ruled uh, a kingdom in the second century B.C., and it was actually located in what is now Afghanistan. And it was part of the Greek Empire because it was conquered by Alexander the Great. And so the Miladapanya is a conversation between King Menander and a Buddhist monk named Nagasena. And in this conversation, they're, they're talking about the difference between paying attention and wisdom. So King Menander says, what is the mark of attention and what is the mark of wisdom and the monk answers consideration is the mark of attention cutting off is that of wisdom how is that the king said give me a simile so the monk said you know barley reapers I suppose yes I do how then do they reap the barley Well, with the left hand, they seize a bunch of barley, and in the right hand, they hold a sickle, and they cut the barley off with that sickle. Well, just so, your majesty, the monk said, the yogi seizes his mental processes with his attention, and by his wisdom, he cuts off the defilements. So then we can use our practice and our mindfulness to pay attention to what is arising. And then with our wisdom, we can actually direct our awareness, direct our mindfulness 
um, in ways that kind of serve to protect our inner stillness and our, our peacefulness. I mean, if we constantly allow our minds to take us wherever their whims desire, then we are going to find ourselves constantly pulled out from that inner calm and that peacefulness. So that's why I like to emphasize that this is really an active practice and where we allow um, a wisdom, a deeper consciousness to actually direct the mind away from unwholesome thoughts and ideas and towards wholesome ones. Now, if you're just beginning to practice, um, this concept um, may be a little bit hard to grasp because in in the beginning, um, you're really simply working on quieting your mind and slowing it down so that you can really see see it at work and get to know it. And this is really an essential stage. And so this is why we talk so much about noting thoughts and noting sensations and then coming back to the breath. Because we we first need to slow down enough to get to know our own minds well enough to know how they work before we can actually begin to take this more um, active role in directing the mind um, away from unwholesome preoccupations. So I'll give you an example from my experience. Um, The first retreat that I attended, I noticed that um, most of the retreatants were walking around with kind of their eyes lowered. You know, wherever they walked, whether it was to the dining hall or in the dining hall or to the meditation hall, wherever they were walking, their eyes were lowered. And so I thought this was really um, odd. I thought it was some kind of put on humility or it just, it just, I I didn't, I I didn't get it. I didn't, I I didn't like it. (laughs) But then when I came to, what what I came to understand is that, um, that this was um, an element of protection that they were, that they were taking, that they were guarding, they were guarding and protecting um, the, the spaciousness and the peacefulness and, and the quietness that they had come to the retreat to, um, to, to, to cultivate. And um, what I realized is that the eye um, and what we take in through our visual senses is a, um, a tremendous um, distractor. I mean, um, visual um, sensations cause um, all these stories that we have, many of the stories to get going. You know, we notice someone, how they look, or what are they, we start to have a story about that person, and why are they wearing that, and that doesn't look good, and, you know. (laughs) So, all this um, information that uh, comes in through our eyes is really distracting. And so then, um, when we're on retreat, then we actually um, take this active way of um, cutting down the, um, the, the sensory distraction that comes through the eye. So that's an example of, um, of actually being taking action in your practice. And when unwholesome things do arise in the mind, the Buddha offered um, some very specific teachings on how to counteract these kind of disturbing um, thoughts or ideas. 
For example, um, he said, when you notice that something um, unwholesome has arisen, direct your attention away and towards something wholesome. So, um, so I've used that actually uh, when I feel some degree of I don't know, ill will or anger towards someone, dislike. Then I can actually, I, I actually let that go and concentrate on uh, doing kind of a loving kindness practice for that person, just wishing them well. So in that way, I actively kind of switch from the unwholesome to the wholesome. And another way that he suggested was, well, you know, reflect or remind yourself um, of how, um, uh, how how these unwholesome ideas and can cause suffering in you. So, for example, I remind myself all the time that anger uh, really burns the one who holds it. And then he also um, offered um, some ways to deal with some very specific things um, that arise in us, like, um, for example, lust. Lust. And he, um, to counteract lust, he suggested meditating um, on the uh, repulsive uh, parts of the, um, your, the object of your lust. <laughs> meditating, reflecting on the repulsive parts of that body. And if you feel desire, greed for, for things, he said, well, bring your attention to uh, impermanence, how everything is impermanent in this world. And when you feel hate arising, he said, work on developing friendliness. So one last quality that um, has been an active ingredient in bringing you here tonight, um, wisdom, wisdom, um, panya, it's called in Pali. And so when we sit with an open and compassionate heart, we, we sit with wisdom. We sit as one who knows And um, in our tradition, wisdom is the highest virtue. And, of course, it's also on many of the the lists that we have. And the Buddha taught that there are um, three pursuits, really, that comprise wisdom. Um, Learning from um, the the, the texts and and, um, uh, scholarly studies. Reflection on the true nature of existence, that everything, reflecting on the fact that everything in, in this world is impermanent and uh, ultimately unsatisfactory, and that there is no um, solid, uh, permanent um, self. And the third was, of course, development of our practice. So um, when thinking about wisdom, um, you know, what words come to mind? Well, understanding, discernment, clarity, 
investigation, insight. Insight's my favorite. <laughs> and, and wisdom's opposites are delusion and confusion, ignorance and self-deception. And when you think of it, what is really at the heart of all the suffering and fear and sorrow in our world? It's ignorance. Ignorance, not sin. Misguided actions. Misunderstanding. So to end, I would like to suggest that these qualities that we've considered this this evening, the qualities that we practice to develop, the the qualities that um, have brought you here tonight, wisdom and mindfulness, um, faith and effort, compassion, kindness. You know, if we practice anger and ill will over and over again in our life, then that's what we'll get. And if we practice generosity and compassion, kindness, graciousness, then that's what we'll have. And these are qualities that I personally consider to be the highest qualities that we as human beings can embody. And that these qualities, we don't need to try to go out and get them and bring them to ourselves. I mean, we develop them, really, in the sense that we grow and nurture the plants in our garden. But we're not, you know, we're not picking something up from out there and bringing it in here. It's not coming from somewhere outside of ourselves. I believe that we all possess these as part of our, our natural state and that they are the qualities of our true nature. Jack Kornfield says, compassion is natural to the awakened heart. And so through this practice, we begin to awaken and we begin to um, uncover these qualities. We begin um, working through all the layers of stuff that's covered them over. So you have within you, all of you, the great heart of a Buddha. Sit simply and quietly uh, with an open mind and an open heart and you will discover it. So um, we have about Ten minutes left. So, um, does anyone um, have anything they would like to add or a question or anything? Okay. Oh, well, I just thought it was <clears throat> inspiring what you had offered tonight. So I thought it got a lot out of that. Um, so that's at least what I wanted. To oh, <laughs> very good. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I really like it when the teacher mentions, and you mentioned, about what we practice. Because it seems that so many people practice just the opposite of what, what we do here. And, um, right. and I myself. And I have so many people in my life who aren't 
part of the Sangha. They're just those regular people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it's just hard to keep it. And we just have to continually practice and go back to our center. You know, it's just really important. So I want to say, so thank you for saying that. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, everyone, you know, everyone's evolving at their own pace. And, um, you know, some people are taking longer than others. <laughs> you know, we don't know. Things are unfolding and we can't really, you know, uh, we, we can't really see the big picture. We're, you know, we're, we're only human. <laughs> we're, you know, so try not to get discouraged. You know, it's all, it's all happening and all okay <laughs> you know how can it be otherwise just as long as we have for ourselves we, we, we have that place where we can go and be quiet and and notice the heart of the Buddha yes um, as we started with silence <laughs> after about a minute and a half, my mind is going, and why do we do this? <laughs> so um, it was nice to hear you talk about why we do this. So thank you. We all have those thoughts. It's one of the hindrances, the Buddha himself. Well, and yeah, actually, it's something I'm, I've been moving in towards doing for like maybe five or six years, but I'm... I'm not quite sure why I'm doing it, or why I'm drawn to it, or mm-hmm. y- y- there's this huge question still. So, mm-hmm. anyway, you address some words to it. Good. One thing I noticed with what you were saying about um, looking for something pleasurable as an opposite to something that is hurtful or harmful to you. Um, I'm taking classes and. One of the things that came up with the class is opposite actions. So when there's an intense emotion about something, you can change it with opposite actions, looking at something pleasurable. One of the things with the class also is picking something you'd like to do during the day to um, that's happy, something you'd like to do. Just make mm-hmm. a daily mm-hmm. diary and write that down. And in another part of that same diary, you write down what you actually did that day. And with the class, we've noticed that we didn't actually do, for the most part, what we wrote down. We did a lot of other things that were pleasurable. And what the teacher brought up, which we were just sitting there going, whoa, was look at all the little tiny pleasurable things that you did instead of the one big one. Life is a lot of little tiny pleasures. Mm-hmm. So if we start looking at things like that, mm-hmm. it changes the way we think. Mm-hmm. And we do become more calm, more uh, uh, obvious of what's going on around us, that it's nice, that it's good. We can pick things out. Mm-hmm. And so take the intense emotions. We can change them by looking for something pleasurable. And it takes that big balloon and it makes it a lot smaller. Because <laughs> you'll notice, this nice thing is so much fun. You go, what happened to this other thing? This big, bad emotion. It's rather amazing. You mentioned it very brief- briefly as you were going through. But the Buddha said, 
So some of this teaching that I'm doing this class with is like that. And I've been looking at this for a long time and it was suggested this, this class. The class has homework to bring home. Whereas I've been just listening and listening for years. But by bringing the homework home and going back and explaining the homework, for some reason it comes across mm-hmm. more clearly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're taking more, you're taking an active role then. And I can, I can understand what you're saying yeah. more now mm-hmm. than I could say a year mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. Very good. Thank you. All right. Well, then, why don't we um, why don't we sit just for a few minutes, almost nine o'clock, and sit quietly together. May the merit of our practice here tonight be to the benefit of all living beings. May all beings be peaceful. Thank you all. Good night.